Welcome to LFPL's At the Library series, an ongoing podcast featuring author talks, programs, and events at the Louisville Free Public Library. For more information about upcoming events, visit us online at www.lfpl.org forward slash upcoming events celebrating Stephen Rowley's newest release, The Celebrants. <laughs> Applause. What might be even more exciting is it hit the New York Times bestseller today. So Rowley is the author of four books. Those books are Lily and the Octopus, which is a Washington Post notable book of 2016, the editor and NPR best book of 2019, the Gunkle, a finalist for the Thurber Prize for American Humor and Goodreads Choice Awards finalist for Novel of the Year, and his newest, The Celebrants, which is officially a New York Times bestseller. And he currently resides in Palm Springs, California. We are incredibly fortunate to have him tonight in Louisville, so everybody please give a big hand for Stephen Rowley. So much. Thank you. All right. This is so incredible. Thank you all for coming out uh, tonight to see me. I feel like I'm hidden back. I'm gonna come, I'm gonna come out here. Uh, I don't need protection from, I don't need a barrier from you. We're all friends. Uh, this is quite a different experience for me because I was not able to tour for the Gunkle, which came out during COVID. And so for my first couple, uh, my first two books, they would send me places like, oh, where do you have friends? Where do you have family? Where do you think you can be responsible for turning people out? And so when they said this time, we'd love to uh, send you to Carmichael's in Louisville, um, I was like, I don't know if that's where my base of support is. <laughs> but now I have friends everywhere, so this is, this is really incredible. Um, so thank you. Thank you for being here. I also feel a little strange being up here by myself. For the, for the first week of the tour, I was traveling with my husband, Byron, also a writer, who had a book out the same day as The Celebrants, um, and so uh, called Big Gay Wedding. And so we had a lot of fun traveling, but, but now I feel like up here in the, in the hot seat alone is, is, it feels a little strange. But you know what? He didn't care enough to be here, so um, <laughs> I'm going to take the time to shine. Uh, no, I, it just, I'll give him a little plug. Big Gay Wedding uh, was uh, inspired by our small gay wedding, which we had uh, during COVID. Um, and I think we were talking, you know, debating, do we wait, do we... Well, all right, I'm going to back up. You're, you're going to get ready to barf. This is just too sickeningly sweet. In the acknowledgments of his first novel, A Star is Bored, which was based on his relationship with the actress and writer Carrie Fisher... He was, his, uh, he was Carrie's personal assistant for years, and they were very close. In the acknowledgments of that book, he proposed, right? <laughs> I think my reaction was, is this in all the copies? <laughs> and it was. Uh, and so in the acknowledgments of the Gunkle, I, I'm, spoiler alert, but I accepted the proposal. And so now proposal and uh, acceptance are now both documented in the Library of Congress, another 
another another library. It's too much. But so when we were deciding, you know, what to do for a ceremony, and obviously we've had an unusual past couple of years, um, we thought, um, well, you know, if we get married now, his family wouldn't really be able to come. My family wouldn't be able to come, and we we talked about it, and we thought that sounds great. <laughs> Actually, let's do it now before people expect to be invited. Um, so we had a five-minute ceremony and about five hours of photos, which his editor saw and said, you know, maybe there's something to write about there, which is how I came to write about the Gunkle, actually. My brother, in real life, I am I'm the uncle to five nieces and nephews, but my brother brought his two boys, who were ages three and five at the time, to see me in Palm Springs, where I live. Uh, and he's an attorney in Boston, and he got called into court to, on behalf of his, his client, and then he left me with his two boys, ages three and three. See, I can't even do number three and five uh, at the time, and uh, I don't have children of my own, so I was wildly unprepared. Um, children are strange. <laughs> in fact, my nephews were only interested in seeing a roadrunner, which, by the way, I was misled to believe were like this tall based on the cartoon. And they're not, but they're everywhere in Palm Springs. They're like pigeons. Like, I took them to the most fantastic zoo called the Living Desert, where they have giraffes and elephants and cheetahs and everything. And all they wanted to see was a roadrunner. And so I had to go ask, I'm sorry, you know, Mr. Zoo Director, do you have a roadrunner? And they had one because it had a broken leg and it was in the aviary, so it couldn't even run. But they were like, it was like the greatest thing they'd ever seen. Um, I could have just taken them to the Chipotle parking lot because they're everywhere. <laughs> um, but anyway, it was at the end of that week where my editor saw me flailing on Instagram and said, you know, there might be something to write about there. Um, so what a journey this has been. And now... Um, I'm going to do, since I'm feeling good today with this instant New York Times bestseller business, um, it's my first, and since you always remember your first, I will always remember Louisville. So thank you for, thank you for being part of that. Um, one slight update to the bio, I actually won, the Gunkle won the Thurber Prize for American Humor uh, earlier this year. Um, thank you. Which is an incredible honor. I mean, writers like David Sedaris and, you know, John Stewart, James McBride won last year, finalists of David Letterman, Bob Newhart, like big names in comedy. And so just to be mentioned in, in that breath is so strange. I took my mother to the ceremony uh, in Columbus uh, in April, and she got off the plane and she said, I read all the books and I know who's going to win and it's not you. Thanks, I think. Did, we, did you bring any luggage? Like, but we went to the ceremony anyway, and um, I had bought a new suit. I was thinking about this, I, because the, the Celebrants is, is a um, Today Show, read with Jenna Pick, and I'm going to be on the Today Show in a couple weeks, and so I bought a new suit for that too, which is yellow, and I'm having second thoughts, because it's, first of all, it's like a literal manifestation of the morning. It's just like, it's like two on the nose, I think. And then I put it on, and I... Who's the, was the man in the yellow hat? Who had Curious George? Curious George, is that right? That's what I thought. I'm like, I'm going to go show up at the Today Show, and Al Roker is like, I think that man lost his monkey. <laughs> um, but I had this other suit, which I was quite proud of for the, for the Thurber Prize. And people, you know, one by one kept coming up to me and said, wow, 
wow, I wish I was brave enough to wear something like that. <laughs> and at first I was like, oh, it's really easy. You put one leg in one fabric tube, and then you put your other leg in the other fabric tube, uh, and you're off to the races. But enough people tell you that, and I'm like, I don't think this is a compliment. <laughs> but anyway, much to my mother's surprise, uh, I was able to win that award, which, I, which I'm still shocked at. And I had to concede on stage that not only do I not think of myself as the funniest writer in America, I'm not even the funniest writer in my own house. That, that, goes, to, that goes to Byron. Um, so if you like my books, you will love his as well. God, he's getting too much credit up here for not, <laughs> for not coming. Um, the Celebrants. The Celebrants. Um, has been out a week now. There was no homework for today, so not expected to have read it. But it was inspired uh, by a couple things. Early on, when uh, you know, in 2020, when we were sheltering at home, I was looking for flipping through Netflix, and I almost said the A word here at an event for an independent bookstore. Let's say Hulu, looking for movies that you know might bring me some comfort. Uh, movies I'd seen in the past, but maybe don't remember all that well. And I had stumbled on The Big Chill. Anybody remember this, this movie 40 years ago? So it's about a group of college friends who come back together upon the death of one of their own um, and sort of contemplate life in middle age and what the back half of their lives are going to look like. It's that sort of middle-aged ennui. And I'm watching this movie, and all the characters are 35. 35 years old. And I was turning 50 that year, so I was like, this isn't comforting. Like... <laughs> This isn't comforting at all. Um, so, but, but something was sparked in me in that moment, particularly because the big chill, the title itself, sort of referred to that period in, in the middle of life where perhaps you are married, you have your kids, you own a house, which is something people used to be able to do. Um, you had your, you know, your job and you were sort of working a single company you know, and sailing through to collecting a pension and retirement. And that's just not the way it works anymore. You know, many people have multiple marriages or blended families, and certainly the ability to reinvent themselves and have multiple jobs and careers. And, and we don't just work for one company anymore, or certainly not most of us. And so I thought, wow, this middle period, instead of being like a metaphorical kind of parking lot, is now where all the great stories kind of reside. And so I imagined a story about a group of college friends who uh, the week before graduation lose one of their own to suicide. And after attending his funeral, they make a pact because they realize if he had been alive to hear everything that was said about him and to realize how much he was loved, he might have made a different choice. And so they make a pact to come back together at each of their lowest points in life and reassemble and throw them, throw each character, their own living funeral and make them sit there and listen to their eulogies so that they would be reminded how essential they are here. Um, and since they're about to graduate and scatter to the wind, they just think of it as sort of like a you know, back pocket and it's kind of an insurance policy they may have, not thinking they'll ever need to use it. But over the decades, life intervenes and they slowly start coming back together. The pact kind of unwinds a little bit. One person wants a destination funeral. One person gets a surprise funeral. Um, but then something happens that sort of underscores the seriousness of the pact again. Um, my college friends are nervous. Uh, and 
I want to assure them that there's no one-to-one parallel uh, of characters, but uh, God, if any of you are friends with um, friends or related to writers, like God help you, because we are sponges. <laughs> and we will take little details. But that's the challenge in writing a book like this, is creating these friendships in a way that feel lived in and time-worn and create inside jokes for them, but in a way that doesn't exclude the reader, you know, coming fresh to this group of friends. Um, so sometimes taking those little little details help make, you know, help make those characters feel really um, unique and alive. Um, let's see, what else can I tell you about this book? I don't know. I would love to open, I would love, I'm, I'm going to think of questions here too, because I would much rather be up here and talk about what you want to talk about. Um, but it's been a real joy to be back out on the road again um, after the past couple years we have. I think there's been a lot of talk about the way artists and writers in particular are going to address the past few years. And I very conveniently and very purposefully skipped the years 2020 through 2023. <laughs> One of my favorite writers is Elizabeth Strout. I wrote the Olive Kittredge books and Pulitzer Prize winner. She wrote a book called Lucy by the Sea. I don't know if anybody read it, but it's, a, it's basically, a, it's, it's almost a TikTok, a running, reliving timeline of the year 2020. And I read it and I was like, <laughs> not ready to relive that year uh, at all. But I do think this book is a reaction to the past couple years, even though COVID is not mentioned in it at all. Because to me, you know, one of the things that has sort of changed is, I I swear this book is funny. I'm going on and on about all this serious stuff, but it's very funny, I hope. Uh, but I become kind of, you know, the way COVID has changed me is I become kind of a mush. And the idea of telling people what they mean to me here while they're still alive is absolutely a reaction to the past couple years. You know, my friends and family see me coming and I'm like, I love you. And they're like, we know. Um, so, but if that's, you know, the worst thing to happen to me uh, over the past couple years, then then I can live with that. Uh, I can live with that, I think. Um, does anybody have any questions? Yeah. I, there's a microphone here, or I don't know if you want to project. You look like you can project. Is that mic on? Okay. Um, I read all three of your earlier books. I'm anxiously waiting reading this one. Um, I love the Patrick Dennis references. <laughs> I don't know how many people get that, but you know, those who know Patrick Dennis really appreciate it. Um, also, one other thing I wanted to mention, I was talking to some fans I just met back here. Um, the first three books are being uh, optioned for films that are being adapted into films. And I don't know if anybody knows that. But yeah. we were talking about specifically Lily and the octopus. And we could see the films being made of the other two, but not so much Lily, Lily and the octopus. So I was just asking you, um, what's going on with these potential films? And do you know anything about what they're going to do with Lily and the Octopus in terms of turning that thing into a movie? Yeah. Um, thank you for that question. I, I want to say, in addition to being a novelist, I'm also a proud member of the, the WGA, and therefore I am on strike at the oh, moment. And I right. will not answer your question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, but please, this is, this is a scary moment for, for, you know, for writers. Not only, you know, are all the... You know, we're up against big corporations and we don't pay writers, you know, respect writers, pay writers what they deserve. You know, again, past couple years, what did we all turn to when we were at home? You know, uh, television, movies, this is, you know, books. This is what got us through. So 
respect writers. That's my spiel there. But also in this moment of on the precipice of 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 AI, of artificial intelligence, which by the way is not intelligence, it's theft. Because what they do is they feed every work of art into it and hoping that it can then recreate. Um, so the question on those, and, and I I actually wrote adapt I wrote the scripts for the editor and um for the Gunkel, but I actually did not write the adaptation for Lily. Because like you, I'm like, what? Uh, I was working as a screenwriter. I was feeling very frustrated with that career when I wrote Lily as a novel. So as a screenwriter, you are always waiting for money, particularly a financer, studio, uh, producers, director, actors. So many layers to get, um, you know, it's, it, to, to get to a production that feels like a miracle that anything ever gets made. So when I decided to write Lily, which was a deeply personal story to me, I had Lily. This is Lily here, chasing her red ball. Um, I didn't want um, to wait. I didn't want to wait. And, and additionally, it was a, since it was so deeply personal and I had this sort of odd way of telling the story in my head, I didn't want all these people giving me, no, 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 let's not do that. That's not a good idea. You know, I, I wanted a more sort of singular way to tell that story. And so I decided to write it as a novel. But you can do things that, with novels that you cannot do with, with screenplays, right? So screenplays are very external. They're very dialogue, action, things you can see on the screen. Whereas Lily is very internal. It all takes place in one man's imagination. Um, there is a talking octopus and a big battle at sea and everything. Of, you know, I could imagine a producer saying, um, okay, we're not doing that. Um, I'm not paying for that. Or, or that's not even possible, you know? <laughs> So I was like joyfully breaking every screenwriting rule and writing that, and sort of cackling to myself, like, oh, no one would ever make this as a movie. And then, and then someone wanted to, and I was like, oh boy. I sort of felt like, you know, I had, you, you know, I had broken it, but it had to be up to someone else to put it, put it back together. That one's moving sort of slowly through the d development process, and, um, and I'm, I'm actually okay with that, because I think that's the easiest one to do very wrong. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to see that. But the other two, particularly the Gunkel, I hope is, um, if we can resolve this strike, that um, we could see that in production very soon. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Uh, I just wondered who, who did your mom think was going to win the Thurber Prize? <laughs> Let's get her on the phone. Um, she thought one of the other finalists, um, Annabelle Gerwich, because she had been a finalist twice. She was a finalist several years ago, and she's a very funny essayist and actor um, and a, a very brilliant writer. And she thought they would no way they would bring this woman back to Columbus a second time and humiliate her in that way by not giving her the award. So I, I think that's who she thought. And then the other two finalists were both like, we love your mom. Oh, she's so great. I wish she was my mom. I was like, that's because she told you she thought you were going to win. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Still, still, still soaring from that. Yeah. Hey, I'd love to hear more about your journey as a writer. You talked about doing screenwriting and novel writing, so more of your background on that and your process. Yeah, um, I like to be very honest, um, particularly if there are writers here or aspiring writers uh, in the room. I didn't publish my first book until I was 45. 
And writing was something I had always sort of toiled with and tinkered with and wanted to do back since I wrote short stories as a kid and my dad would bring them into his office and photocopy them and bring home like 10 copies so I could give them to friends and family. And I remember thinking, you know, at like seven years old, like there can be more than one copy of something I write. Like, um, and then for a long time, it did feel like I was, I was the last person maybe who didn't give up on me, you know. That, not to call out mom again, but she's, you know, she's like, you sure you don't want to go to law school? It's, not, it's probably not too late. Um, but I had a terrible fear of being that non-traditional student who shows up with a briefcase and all the kids, like, laugh at me. Um, but I, I hung in there. So that's, that's one thing I want to say. I was always jealous of someone who went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop or a prestigious writing program and at 25 years old made a headline-making deal for their own, you know, for their first novel or something. And that just was not my path. Writing is a business that's based on rejection. Uh, you know, I'm up here having fun because I'm having a pretty good run of it now, but there are years of rejection. And there are other books in a drawer that never got offers for representation or, or you know, the interest of a, a publisher. And so, um, so I do like to be sort of clear about that, that struggle and the hard work that it takes sometimes. And yet, here we are now, and two of the biggest publishing success stories of the past decade are um, Delia Owens, where, it's, where the crawdads sing, and, and Bonnie Garmus, where Lessons in Chemistry, if anyone's wonderful book. And that's a debut author in her 60s and a debut author in her 70s. Um, so I always like to encourage people, publishing is one of the businesses, I think, that values life experience and values um, the stories that, that come from having lived life. Um, and so that was more my path. And I also like to be honest, too, Lily and the Octopus, my first book, um, it did well by any metric. It wasn't a smash hit, but it did well. I there was no way I thought I wouldn't get a second chance at bat. And yet, when I wrote the editor, my publisher was uh, rejected it. <laughs> and I think, and that's a book I'm very proud of, but I think from their perspective was like, why don't you write um, another dog book? And I was naive because I didn't think I'd written a dog book. I thought I'd written a book about grief. And, um, and I think we all know, we can all name writers who have very good careers writing slightly different versions of the same story again and again and again. And God bless, not like they do great with that. But that was just not, I'd waited so long for these opportunities. Like that was, I wasn't interested in that being my career. And so I had to really stop and, and you know, think about it. I was like, well, they have a point. Here I am. I've waited for these opportunities. Maybe I should write another book about with a dog in it. And then I thought, you know, if I'd asked anyone's permission to write a book about a dog and an octopus, like literally no one would have said that's a good idea. <laughs> so I, you know, decided to roll the, the dice on myself again. And, um, and fortunately, fortunately it worked out. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise I'd be in law school now at 52. Yeah. I just have uh, two comments and then a question. So thank you for coming to, coming to Kentucky. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of authors and artists overlook the middle of the country, and we're really glad to have you here. So, um, And then I want to acknowledge, I think you conjured something. So The Celebrants is about best friends in college. Mm -hmm. I am sitting here. I, I drove over from Lexington, which is about an hour and a half away. Okay. I'm sitting here minding my own business. I look over. And one of my best friends from college walks in. I haven't seen her in like two years. <laughs> so
So thank you for that. That's incredible. That's um, truly incredible. And then my question. So all of your books have to do with death or maybe even like probably more specifically grief. Mm -hmm. And so I was just wondering if you could talk about that. <laughs> so I was just wondering if you could say, what's wrong with you? No. Uh, but like, I mean, you find humor in yeah, it. And it's, yeah. Well, thank you for that, too. One, I want to acknowledge your T-shirt, which I think says, read band book. It, it either, thank you. It either said, read Anne's books or <laughs> read band books. Um, yeah, so coming to Kentucky, this is, a, this is a thrill for me to be here. And listen, there are a lot of, you know, talk about red states, blue states. I live in California. Every blue state is a red state with just two blue pockets. <laughs> You know, it's true of California, it's true of New York, it's true of Pennsylvania. Um, and there are wonderful people in, in um, you know, every state. And so I'm thrilled to be here and talk to people. And it's also, like, the, re the reason your t-shirt, um, you know, speaks to me is we're in, a, we're in a really dangerous and, you know, moment in time where, it, and it's not just for LGBTQ people, um, but rights that we have taken for granted, for example, women's rights. Um, but but the, the defunding of libraries, um, banning books again, like things that God we thought we there's a great um, new Judy Bloom documentary where and, and just to hear her take on the, where her books are at the top of the targeted banned list now, still 50 years after they were, you know people were gunning for them the first time around, like to, to live that long and see this all come. I mean it's got to be so disheartening. So I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to stand up for libraries and books and. Um, and meet great people uh, everywhere. But we do have to be um, diligent. Um, wait, what was the question? What was the question? <laughs> oh, <laughs> grief. Why am I so depressing? Um, you know, grieving is something that is really interesting to me. And I don't, I don't, I haven't lived a tragic life in some way that I've experienced my share, but not more than my share. Um, and so I don't know why I keep coming back to this other than grief feels so isolating when you are in it and you feel very lonely and alone. Um, and yet it's so universally part of the human condition. If you love something, you will probably grieve one day. And so, and then, you know, the humor element, humor is all, has always been the way through every hardship um, for me. Um, so, but it is combining grief, it's combining humor, and then also like joy, hopefully, because as a, you know, as a closeted young person um, in a rural state, I grew up in Maine, um, you know, I turned to books to look about what life might be possible. I came out in 1992, you know, more people were dying of AIDS in 92 than, God, I'm a humorist for God's sakes, what am I, <laughs> what am I doing? Then even in the 1980s, but, um, you know, the books that were available at the time, you know, I'm looking at James Baldwin and Christopher Isherwood and the sort of classic queer literature are about lives lived in the shadows, lives cut short, lives um, that seemed kind of lonely. And, and the truth of it is I was very lucky to be born at a moment where a lot of change has happened. So my life has been um, filled with community and joyous and comparatively long. And so I kind of write for the, that young kid in me, too, um, so that there is this sort of example of what, what great joy life, life can hold. But it is, it is finding that balance, and I think it's sometimes the hardest thing that I do. Is like, if you, if you write too many jokes in a scene, like it, 
it just takes the air out of what you're trying to say. But conversely, if you go too long without letting, you're writing about grief and you go too long without letting the reader take a breath with a joke, with a laugh, um, that can tip it too seriously too. And so I try to take that balance very seriously. Yeah, you can project, I know you can. That's a, uh, that's a sort of fun question if you're interested in publishing and inside baseball and all that. I was asked it with, with Byron by the side and some, someone asked me that question like, Stephen, walk us through the process of when you were chosen and let us know everything. And then Byron, you tell us where you were when Stephen was chosen. And, blah, 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 blah. and poor Byron is just like, oh, um, tired of me this year, I think. Uh, so these celebrity book clubs have sort of changed publishing in a way, and they're, they're a real driving force now in publishing, and, the, and so there's Jenna, uh, Jenna Bush Hager in the Today Show, and there's Reese Witherspoon has one, and the godmother, Oprah, um, still has hers, and, and they, they're really doing incredible things to, to shine a light on, on books, but it is also a business now, too, so they do work in conjunction with the publishers to make sure that when the book is announced, there's enough copies printed and, you know, and all that. And they do want to make it a surprise. So I don't know how it works for everybody. I can just tell you how it worked in my case. Um, I found out uh, in December, and I had to keep that. They put the fear of God into you, you know. Um, you have to keep it, keep it a secret. So I wouldn't tell my mom. She wouldn't have believed it anyway. <laughs> She's a lovely woman. She is actually, uh, you know, one of my biggest fans. And so I, you know, and she tells everybody about her, her son. And I have to remind her that I'm not even the most famous writer named Stephen from Maine. <laughs> <laughs> but she gets a big kick out of it. Um, so, yeah. And then so I, I knew in, and I had the opportunity to Zoom with, with Jenna um, before it was offered to me. I don't know if it's like an audition or it's just, she truly passionately loves books and she had read it herself and it was the two of us on a Zoom and having a you know, deep conversation about a lot of things. And so um, she really, you know, in that instance, she, you know, she really is the one reading and picking and it's not just something she put her name on. Yeah, so it was exciting. Yeah, anybody else? Yeah, hell. All right, on the same day, yeah, so I, can everybody hear that? Like, what is it like being married to another writer and having books out on the same day? A lot of people want to know if we plan that, and the answer is yes, no. There's, there's no way we could have. We have different publishers, we have different agents, we um, wrote them at slightly different times. It is just um, coincidence or the casual homophobia of thinking that gay people only exist in June. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm just going to amuse myself up here. Um, it's the one thing about this job that's, you know, that's interesting, and I don't want to take credit away from anybody because obviously I wrote a book called The Editor. I hold editors in very high esteem, and there's a whole team. There are publicists. There are this marketing department. There's, you know, I have an agent. There's a whole team that goes behind, you know, into publishing. But when you're in that first draft, when it's you and an idea and you're getting it down for that first time, like it is a very solitary endeavor. And so, and, and while I love being able to meet other writers, I never really get to see them do the work, you know? I don't know. Um, 
I'm very, I'm a stickler for my covers. I, you know, they give me an idea, I say no. And, and I'll send them some reference artwork and I go back and forth and I've, I've done this a couple times. I'm like, am I difficult to work with or does everybody, you know, does every author do this? Because they, you know, no one's going to care more than you. So, so it's, it, it's fun to have someone else, you know, I am in the rare position where I can see someone else kind of do the work a little bit and whatnot. Um, I think, you know, and we are able to give each other notes. I think the challenge in that is always like um, knowing which hat to wear. So, um, uh, you know, is he look? You know, if he brings me something to read, is he looking to me as as, as a spouse? In which case, I I want to encourage and keep going. And is he is he asking me for notes as another writer? In which case, um, you know, I'll give him, uh, but you know, delicately. But I'll but I'll do it. Or is he looking for like you know line edits for from you know a critical eye or or um, the one thing that doesn't uh, doesn't fly usually is if I try to punch up his jokes. That doesn't go over well. I'm like. I have this award now. <laughs> he still doesn't like it. Yeah. Um, but we've, we've made it work really well. We've made it work really well. Yeah. Yes. What day will I be on this? June 20th, I think. June 20th. And I see you inching up here. I'm going to try not to get choked up. So, <laughs> no, um, stop. I know uh, Steve for a long time. Um, we were, I think sort of trauma bonded back. Um, uh, so first of all, let me backtrack. Someone asked earlier about what it was uh, like Steve's journey as a, as a writer. I feel like I can provide a little bit of insight. Not a lot, but a little <laughs> bit. Um, so this was back when Steve was talking about how uh, this might have been prime law school yep. pressure yep. time, um, where we were working together sort of as legal assistants at this entertainment law firm. And uh, Steve and I quickly became friends. He's just as funny, if not funnier. You can tell how funny he is, right? By his books, but also um, uh, his conversation right now. We would eat lunch, we would hang out, we became fast friends. And it's funny because in LA, anybody who's sort of underemployed is a writer. <laughs> uh, including, I think, maybe at some point I had mentioned to Steve, like, yeah, maybe I'll get into to writing, you know? And I think at that time, I'd maybe written like one page before I was like, this is hard. Um, I, don't, I don't know what else to do. And when one of our conversations, uh, Steve just dropped this nugget that he had already written two novels. Um, at which point I was like, oh, he's really seriously a writer. He really does this. Um, and so I think at that point I knew uh, that he was either going to keep writing and become very successful, or just keep working at the law firm and keep writing. He was a writer, and uh, it was very clear that that was his passion. He was going to do that. And the other thing is, in LA, when people do become successful, you don't know uh, if they have a parent who's a producer mm -hmm. or uh, they have some sort of connection, and Steve just did it all on his own. Um, so I don't have a question. I just want everyone here to know that Steve's the real deal. Uh, he's an amazing writer. He's an amazing guy. He's really funny. He's really nice. And uh, I'm just like super proud. You're so, oh, wow. You've done so well. It's really great. Yeah. Thank you. I should have come to Kentucky before. <laughs> um, 
that's so so kind of you to hear. And we haven't haven't seen each other um, in uh, I don't even know how long, however many years, ten, fifteen years. <laughs> I don't even know how long it would have been. You look great. <laughs> um, but you reminded me of something too, which I wish you know because all that time. Um, I don't, there was no question. I don't need to speak. I'm going to speak anyway. All that time, um, I would say, oh, or I would feel a little bit of hesitancy or shame in calling myself a writer because that's not how I paid the bills, right? I had many day jobs. I worked in a law firm for a very long time. By the way, an entertainment law firm, where as a legal assistant, it was our job sometimes to draft contracts for other artists whose dreams were coming true. <sighs> that was hard work. Um, but I would always say, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a paralegal, but, but I also write, you know, I also do a little writing or something. And I look back on the time and how I always apologized about the writing part because I felt some kind of shame that that's not how I made my money. Um, and if there are any writers here, I want to tell you, stop it. <laughs> Don't do that. If you write, you are a writer. It is that, um, you know, it, it doesn't matter that people are paying you now, later, never. Um, it is the work that matters, and and doing the work, and 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 doing the work, and not giving up is the only way um, that I was able to get, you know, transfer from there to here. Um, but you do remind me, I do have those two books in a drawer still, and I should shred them before somebody Harper leaves me. <laughs> And my rotten nieces and nephews try to make some money off of me someday. <laughs> As if they haven't gotten enough notoriety already. They, don't, they haven't read the Gonkle yet, but they, the book is dedicated to them, so they know where to find their, they know where to find their names in the front. That's as far as they care to have, <laughs> care to have read so far. Yes, not much of a reader. No, just kidding. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like today's show, book club pick gets canceled for not. Not reading. Um, by the way, is this being recorded by any chance? <laughs> I, I told this. I told that wedding story the other day in a, a, at an event, and um, you know, like, oh, our families can't come. That'll be great. And it was being uh, simulcast on YouTube, and my family was <laughs> watching. <laughs> I was like, I, this is like such a warm embrace. I just feel so comfortable just talking. <laughs> got to edit myself more. Um, my life as a reader. Uh, so, yes, I get to read things. Um, sometimes uh, I'm lucky enough to be able to read things in advance. I'm either being asked to endorse a book or, or support it somehow or post about it on, on Instagram. Um, and so I'm happy to do that. I, I get to read friends' works. You know, you meet other writers. You get to read their... It gets rarer and rarer, unfortunately, that I get to pick up a book and read it simply because it speaks to me, you know, the recreational reading that is not part of the job. Because also, or I'm reading for research, or I'm reading for, you know, some other part of the job. So I, it's still so joyous to be able to just pick up a book and read it, because I want to in that moment. There's no professional obligation, there's no nothing except the joy of picking out a book. Um, and so, I, you know, I do try to protect time for that. Uh, you know, when I meet other writers now, sometimes I'm just like, can we just have a pact? Speaking of packs, I was like, can we have a pact of non-aggression? I was like, you don't read my book. I won't read your book. <laughs> we could just relate to each other as writers and human beings. 
Um, that doesn't always go over well. Uh, actually, on tour, it's, it's been a great time to write, you know, because I'm on a lot of planes and hotel rooms, and so reading his, um, you know, in strange cities. So reading has been, not that this is a strange city, I mean, it's just not fam an unfamiliar city to me. Um, and so I've had a, a lot of time to, to read. And I, but sometimes I don't think about it carefully because there's, there's a new book that came out the same day I, mine did. I become friendly with the, the writer, a book called Drowning, T.J. Newman. She was a flight attendant, and now she writes these terrible books about air disasters. And so I'm like, I was all excited. I had my books to bring on the plane, and I'm like, I can't read this. I'm going to safely save that for when I'm back, on the, you know, back at home. Um, so yeah, I still love to be able to pick up a book and sometimes still like to revisit. I just reread The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay because it was a book that met, I mean, but Michael Chabon book won the Pulitzer Prize meant a lot to me 20 years ago now. Um, and I wanted to read it again to see if it still spoke to me. And so that felt like an indulgence in a way because there's so many books. There's so many books that I need to read to, that to revisit one. But in, you know, it was what I wanted to read in that moment. And so I... I let myself do it. I don't know if that answers any questions. Are you looking for specific recommendations? We can talk later, but yeah. Yes. Oh, th that I just reread? The, the Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 2003, I think, 2002 or 2003. Yeah. Yes. So... Love librarians. We're here in the library always. You know, sometimes, speaking of being apologetic, sometimes people will come to me and say, I'm sorry, I got your book in the library. Never apologize for that. First of all, libraries buy books too. Um, you know, uh, you can be tricky like my mom. You know, here I'm going to say something good about my mom, about how big a fan she is. She calls her local library and keeps putting my books on hold and then releases them at the last second because she wants them to feel more popular. <laughs> But my cousin's a librarian who, who gets the, the, uh, the ALA, the American Library Association, newsletter, and there was a blurb in that that The Celebrants is currently the book with the most library holds on it in the United States. And so I had to send that to my mother and be like, okay, you can take your foot off the gas now, Mom. <laughs> Stop prank calling the library, for God's sake. Um, I am able to do what I do today because I had um, parents who encouraged me to get a public library card, uh, and there was a librarian in the children's room who took a special interest in me, uh, Mrs. Bredo. I remember her to this day. I imagine she's long gone, but her effect on, I get emotional thinking about it. Um, it had nothing to do with the fact that Red's Dairy Freeze sat across from <laughs> the library. And when I would go as a kid, I was entrusted with a little bit of money, and so I could go to the library all day and then go, and then go there. My sister and I would drop us off one day. This is a tangent, sorry. My sister lost her, her money, and so she thought it was incumbent upon me to share my money, and we could each get a more modest treat. And you can imagine... My take on the situation was slightly <laughs> different. You know, sort of like, sucks to be you. Um, but Mrs. Bredo pulled out, you know, I don't know what it was, 50 or 75 cents from her own person. 
gave it to my sister, and off we went to get to get. Um, this I'm just a story about how much I love librarians. And and we were in the car after my mother came to pick us up, and and she, um, you know, we were telling her about our good fortune. Oh, hey, look, we we thought we were down on our luck, but this amazing thing happened, and and we each got this incre you know incredible amount of ice cream, and. My mother pulled a U-turn in the street and marched us back into the library to repay Mrs. Bredo and said, we do not take money from librarians. <laughs> they give us enough of themselves already. So as a kid, was that my reading as a kid? Was that the, the question? Well, absolutely, Judy Bloom uh, was up there. Beverly Cleary, you know, Henry and, and, and Ribsy, particularly. I always love a dog story. Um, Man, other books I remember, you know, I was just I was just that kid who was like trying to check out a stack of books that was tall, you know. They're like, kid, come on. You know, you can come back. <laughs> you don't have to take them all with you. Um, it's always in that moment where I'm I'm sort of drawing a blank. But you know, and then when I when I transferred transferred out of the children's room, <laughs> when I sort of outgrew the children's room a little bit, you know, writing was something I was always very interested in, but before social media, and, the, and I have a great relationship with a lot of readers now that I'm able to contact, they can contact me on Instagram or Twitter or all these hellish things. Um, but there can be real relationships between reader and writer now. That just was harder to do then. And so I thought growing up in a rural state, oh, maybe being a novelist is something you can do if you grow up in Manhattan or if you have a society name. But I didn't see it really as a career option for me, except there was Stephen King. And so when I left the children's room, I went right to Stephen King and I read all of that, which is nothing like what I write today, but I was, you know, I read everything, 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 yeah. Yes, not anymore. <laughs> ah, someone's read the book. Um, so I do have a group of close-knit college friends, um, no, we have not used a, a Ouija, Ouija board, Ouija, Ouija, it's spelled Ouija, it's Ouija. I, so I just read the, um, I just read the, I read the, the audiobook for this, um, and I did for the Gunkel too, which I don't know why I thought I would do that, so there's enough of a high school theater kid in me still that apparently I enjoy the spotlight a little bit. <laughs> um, but I, the wonderful actor, Michael Urie, did my first two audiobooks, and, uh, I remember telling a friend, I guess it was something about the gun call, about that character that I thought was close to me. I want to go back to Patrick, uh, Patrick Dennis for a moment, who wrote the anti-mame books. If you've read the gun call, you might know that I have a fascination with anti-mame or Mary Poppins or even Maria from The Sound of Music, all these sort of magical caregiver kind of stories. But I, I thought, I'm going to come back to you in a second, I thought that, um, you know, I was thinking a lot about mid-century writers, you know, Patrick Dennis or, or Tennessee Williams or people who were either closeted or didn't have the ability in that time to write openly gay characters and, and perhaps then created these larger-than-life women as stand-ins for gay characters that you could not write 75 years ago. Um, so it was a great joy to kind of recreate this sort of mame character as perhaps a gay man that he might have written it as uh, originally if he'd been free to. Um, Oh, but when I read the, I was telling a friend I was going to read the audiobook for the Gunkel, and he was bragging, you know, I was bragging, I was excited to do it. By the way, the publisher didn't think it was a good idea. I had to audition. 
to do the to do the audiobook. Anyway, my friend was like, "You're going to put an actor out of work during a pandemic." Um, but Michael Urey is now on a television series with Harrison Ford, so it's fine. Um, oh, I brought that up because I mispronounced Ouija. I mispronounced. I said Ouija when recording the thing, and I had to go back and re-record all those sentences <laughs> in the book. Um, but yeah, I do have a close-knit group of college friends, and I did also recently lose one to, to breast cancer while I was working on, on this book. And it, there is something, you know, particularly about, about being my age now, where I have friends who are easily 20 years older, I have friends who are easily 20 years younger, and there's no, you know, we expect to lose our grandparents and eventually our parents if parents ever lose a child, that's very outside of the natural order. That's something that, you know, is horribly wrong. Uh, but to lose a friend, there's no real deal with that. And there is, you know, I was really just thinking about my college friends and how these, friend, these friendships that you've had for a long time that are so important, people who knew you, you know, when you're full of dreams, and now all my dreams are dead. Uh, no, I don't know. I still have dreams. But when you had you know, dreams as a young person, before you were married, before you had a career, before you knew how life was going to turn out, and are your friend now, when all those things are sort of um, a little bit more locked into place. And, and, and they're the real bridge that can help reconcile those two versions of you. So they are people um, who are incredibly important to me still. I, there's nothing really in the book that we have done together other than this is not really a spoiler alert, but in the opening scene he is looking at um one of the characters looking at his friends and and one has you know has to take the readers out to look at a menu and the other is taking their flashlight on their phone to read the menu and all this stuff and you can't see that on yourself but you know and i had a moment like that i had a moment like that where we went out after our friend's funeral where i'm looking at these people who i've been friends with for for 30 years now and i'm looking at them and i was like well, what happened to them? <laughs> you know, and it's only because you can't see it on yourself. But that was kind of a, an entry point for the, for the book. And I realized I loved, I loved this version of us more because we had, you know, survived. It's stuck together. And um, yeah, yes. Yeah. So more about the audiobook. Did, does, did, people, did people listen to audiobooks here, to enjoy audiobooks? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a very interesting process. I, I'm more, still more of a reader, I, although I'm, I'm listening more and more to certain books, certain, especially nonfiction books, so I'm more apt to try on audio. Um, it's a fascinating process. And so, they, so I live in Palm Springs, California. They rented me a, a, a recording studio. They have a professional recording studio there. They rent it. It takes about, they reserve it for me for a week, and it's like eight-hour days. You come in at nine in the morning, and you read until five. The awful thing about doing it in, in Palm Springs, which, by the way, you know, these little recording booths, they're, you know, padded with that, like, egg crate kind of material. And I was like, I knew I'd end up in a padded room if I, <laughs> if I wrote long enough, um, is they have to turn off the air conditioning because uh, the microphone picks up that whir, that sound. And so, you know anything about Palm Springs? It gets quite hot. Uh, and I just recorded it like a month ago, well, the end of April or so. And so it was already getting really hot. So it's myself. I have a director in the headphones. He's either in New York or L.A. I forget where he was. But it's just someone I'm, 
I can hear, who's listening in on the session. And then I'm in this little booth, and there's a window, and there's an audio engineer. And it's a great audio engineer <laughs> for audio engineers. Uh, so anyway, he was, and he's not, let's just, let's just say he's not one of my traditional readers. So he's watching me, you know, perform this book, and what, and you, you know, you read as much as you can, and you stumble over a word, you go back, and they do miraculous things, editing it all together. Because sometimes I am reading along, and I'm like, who wrote this shit? You know, <laughs> there was a moment in the Gunkel where I thought I was so brilliant because I'm like, I'm going to give one of the kids a lisp, because then I don't have to tag every piece of dialogue. I don't have to write. He said, she said, Maisie said, Grant said. It'll be clear which child is talking. And then I go in to record the audiobook, and I was like, son of a bitch! <laughs> um, so it does, it takes, it takes, you know, that kind of full week, and they, they edit it all together. But at the very end, the audio guy was like, oh, you're really, you know, you're crying there at the end, aren't you? And I was like, no, I'm sweating, <laughs> is what it is. Um, but I was also crying, but I didn't want to give him the satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah, but it was, it was a lot of fun. I don't know if I'll always do it, but um, the interesting thing from, from my perspective is like, you know, writing a book that lives inside your head and your head alone for so long, you hear it a very particular way. And when an actor reads the audio book, um, you know, they may read it a different way. And by the way, that's their job. An actor should absolutely interpret the text and give their performance of it. But it, it, if it sounds different from my head, it's, hard, it's just hard for me to listen to. It's not that other people don't enjoy it or would ever know it. But I think it's interesting sometimes, you know, if you're curious how it sounds in my head, that's there's kind of like a document of that. And time is up. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Um, so poor Michael Ure, I've made him be a dog now. And I also made him be, if anyone's read the editor, one of the characters in it is... Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. And so I made, her be, I made him be a dog, and then I made him be Jackie O. Um, he's wonderful. Yeah, I got, um, again, only from my perspective, I don't know if every author gets this, but they, they sent me a, a list of names, and he was on it, and I was a fan of his, and I said, um, yeah, I would, I, would, I would love to. And then he read the book, and really, but he wanted to talk to me before recording it, so we talked on the phone for a couple hours, just got to know each other, because it was very personal book to me and he wanted to make sure that he did it justice and I, I think he's a remarkable person we become lovely friends too until I fired him <laughs> um, so that was that was great was there another part of that question oh so Lily yeah if you haven't picked up the book she will so Lily speaks in two ways in the novel right with regular quotation marks and d d regular punctuated dialogue and that you know Ted, the main character, is imagining these conversations with his dog, but really he's carrying on both sides of the conversation. We're, we all do, you know, well, those of us with dogs, we all kind of do this, right? But then Lily also talks in all caps with an exclamation, part, exclamation mark after every word. And that was my attempt at a literal translation of her barking. So that's really the barking. So that's what he's doing. You know, he's sort of playing both sides of that. Yeah, and I thought he did a really good job. Yeah, time for one or two more. Yeah, yeah. Aha! For the Gunkle Vitaker. Okay, so two questions: Who should play Patrick in the movie? I want to know who you think should play Patrick in the movie. Okay. 
<laughs> yeah. Only because, listen, I love, I love uh, Stephen Colbert, too. I'm a big fan. But I think we're at a, a tipping point. I, I mean, and we talk about this with writers, too. For instance, okay, so the Celebrants is about a, a, a friend group. That it's, and to make it feel like my friend group and, and real life, it's a diverse group of friends. You know, it's a Japanese woman and there's a, a man from South America. If I, I would not write a book with a lead, where the lead character was a Japanese woman. It's not my place to tell her story. And I think with casting, we're at an interesting point too, where it's kind of, we're kind of at the tipping point where who has the right to play what roles and whatnot. And I don't know that I always come down on a hard and fast answer to that, but I think for Patrick in particular, you know, we talked about the magical caregivers, you know, to the extent that, you know, Patrick's magic comes from his lived experience as a gay man, his empathy, his sense of humor, his pop cultural references, his politics, it all stems from his lived experience and, and what he's gained and lost. And so I do, I do think in this, in this instance, it's important to have an out uh, gay actor to play the role. So we'll take Stephen off the table. Yeah, yeah. Did you have a thought too? Okay. I get a good look. There, I, I, listen, I'm doing a tap dance up here. There is an actor signed on to play, and I have, I, I'm not allowed to say who it is. And so <laughs> you can just shout names and see if you can tell but, by my reaction. All right, are we friends here? Is this being recorded? See, this is what... <laughs> Y'all gonna get me in trouble because I feel so. I feel like we're such great friends. Um, wait, there was the oh, does it change in the writing process? And yeah, again, I wrote I wrote a book called The Editor. I'm fascinated by the relationship with writers and editors. And you know, in that book, the the, the manuscript changed through um, his work with his editor. And yeah, in the Gunkel, particularly, I think you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna come. This isn't gonna be a huge surprise for those who've read my books, but. Plot is not what I'm most interested in, right? I am fascinated by character and putting people in a room together and letting them emote and relate and struggle and um, reconcile and laugh and laugh and laugh. Uh, there, so I'm not a, a plot-heavy writer. Um, and so... The business in, in the Gunkel, the business with the sister, a lot of that storyline came later because it did need a little bit more plot. It turned out just Patrick and the kids sitting around together wasn't quite enough. So yeah, sometimes more more develops through through the different drafts. Yeah. 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 Would I ever revisit those? Uh, there's one that I think I would, I would revisit. The interesting thing about, you know, it takes so long to write a novel and it's such an endeavor. You become a better writer with each one, hopefully, you know, with each one that you do. So those being so long ago, yeah, I would absolutely, I'm a different writer now. So I would, um, I would absolutely want to rewrite them from page one. But there's one idea, idea that I'm still kind of enchanted with. So yeah, yeah, I would. I think, think. We'll see. see. All right. We want to close it out with one more. Any last? Speak now. Forever hold your peace. Big gay wedding. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to say to... 
Thank you for supporting independent bookstores. And um, I think, you know, I was nervous during COVID that, that you know, uh, that what would happen to our bookstores and so many of them had to close for a time and whatever, but they've come roaring back. So many have not only survived, but are now thriving. And, and I thank you for coming out for programming and allows other authors to come here. Um, I think you have, uh, somewhere down the line, you have another Thurber Prize winner coming later this year. They're not listening to me. <laughs> Is that true? Do you guys have David Sedaris coming later this year? Yes. So maybe I'll come back for that. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. <laughs>